Welcome to Episode 2 of Ghost in the Stacks, the podcast where I review and recommend horror and horror-adjacent books. If you're looking for your next spooky story, then you've come to the right place. Today, I'll be talking about a book that takes us to a world in which cannibalism has been legalized and examines how it would operate under capitalism. And the other book tackles addiction and white guilt using ghosts and the haunted past of Richmond, Virginia, a city whose history is steeped in racism, slavery, and inequality. So without further delay, here's the first review of a book called Tender is the Flesh. How do you think cannibalism would function under capitalism? If you've ever thought about this, then I have the book for you. Tender is the Flesh is by an Argentine author named Agustina Bastarica. Um, sorry, I know I'm not pronouncing her name very well. I can't roll my R's. I would call this book a dystopian story with some body horror and anti-capitalist elements thrown in. This book is definitely not for those who have a weak stomach. I'm normally someone who isn't bothered like that. Um, I have a pretty strong stomach when it comes to like watching pretty gross horror movies and I can still eat like through the whole thing. But there were a couple times during this book where I did have to like pause because I felt a little uneasy about what I was reading. So I just wanted to get that out of the way before I start talking about the story that it can get pretty graphic and intense about what the themes and what the actual narrative is about. Within the first couple pages, we find out that there was a virus that infected all, if not most, of the animals on Earth that made them poisonous for human consumption. We don't really get a lot more details on like what the virus was, how, or why it happened. And at first it kind of bothered me, but once I got into the story, I got really wrapped up into the consequences of that happening that it didn't really take away from me enjoying the book at all. After the public's craving for meat reaches a boiling point, the government legalizes cannibalism and it becomes industrialized and standardized, and it's become known as special meat. And it's interesting because people know that uh, humans are being bred in captivity specifically for consumption, but nobody's really allowed to directly refer to what's actually happening. They use terms like product or special meat. It's kind of become a taboo subject to really dance around the issue that people are eating other people. We're introduced to this world through our protagonist and point of view character, Marcos. Marcos is the general manager for one of the most reputable processing plants since the transition to special meat. He's basically in charge of the daily operations, all the processes, and all of the staff who work at the plant. Right off the bat, pretty much right at the beginning of the book, we're taken through a typical workday right along with Marcos. And I think what really adds to the horror is the entirely matter-of-fact way he describes what's going on in the processing plant. He walks us through how the product is shipped in, inspected, and then prepared for slaughter. And you know, the whole time this is going on, you need to remember that these are humans that are being brought in, humans that were bred specifically for consumption. And so that really just adds to the horrific description of how these people are being slaughtered and it's just another typical day at work for Marcos and all of the staff. The narrative goes into pretty intense detail about the preparations that the staff are making to basically cut the product into pieces and specific cuts of meat that are shipped out to various customers like butchers and high-end retailers. 
We learn that when the transition happened, not many people who worked in the meat processing industry were able to stomach the transition to processing this new special meat. Marcos, our protagonist, is one of the few people who's been able to make that transition and do this work and continue doing the work extremely well and for a pretty long time. I won't spoil anything, but as we get further in the story, we learn Marcos doesn't really have a choice and he needs to continue doing this kind of work because it's really the only work he's known how to do his entire life. And I think that explains why he's so cold and detached when he talks about the processes and every step along the way of processing the meat. I mean, I think you kind of have to leave your body if you're going to do this kind of work. The narrative horror in Tender is the Flesh kind of feels like a weighted blanket that's draped over the entire story. But then there's also this feeling of longing and sadness that's just weaved beautifully in throughout the entire book. The virus didn't just make animals poisonous for humans to consume, it also made it pretty deadly if you were to get just a scratch or a bite from any animal. And so animals were gathered and killed in mass, and that includes all of the pets that everybody owned. So there's these moments of melancholy when characters are reflecting on what it was like to play with a dog or trying to remember what it felt like to pet a cat because nobody can do that anymore. These simple but extremely meaningful animal-human relationships that we've taken for granted are now gone forever. And we feel these memories through Marcus as he provides a brief respite from the harsh and cruel meat processing world. And he slows down and thinks about childhood memories and he thinks about some dogs that he used to have when he was younger. Now the real villain of the story, if we had to pick one, is capitalism, and more specifically, it's neoliberal capitalism. Once we get a good idea of how this first level of the new meat processing system works, we follow Marcus through a more administrative workday. We watch him as he meets with his boss, who is the actual owner of the processing plant, and they discuss day-to-day -day issues like hiring staff who can handle the psychological strain of the kind of work they have to do, and resolving issues with the breeder about how product is being damaged, being shipped from the breeder to the slaughterhouse. And speaking of the breeder, we do get a pretty detailed rundown about how humans are bred in captivity for human consumption. We follow Marcus as he goes from the slaughterhouse to the breeder to the butchers to other high-end customers, and we watch him emotionally get worn down having to conduct these business meetings in such a cold and detached manner. The wealth and power these people have amassed in this new meat processing system is on full display as we watch as they literally eat other humans they deem lesser than them. I've really only talked about the logistics and consequences of this new system and just some of the psychological effects it has on our protagonist, but once we get further in the narrative there are many more other character dynamics at play, like Marcos has a whole conflict with his family that he also has to deal with. But there is a central conflict and a surprise catalyst that kind of gets everything moving that I won't spoil because it was really satisfying to read as it was unfolding in real time and just kind of figure out what was exactly going on. So yeah, if you can stomach the idea of cannibalism and learning in extreme detail the ins and outs of how the meat processing industry would function under capitalism, then I would give Tender is the Flesh a read. The true horror is the mundane acceptance that people have resigned themselves to because the corporate and government powers have pretty much left them no choice. 
They know all about the brutality going on behind the scenes, but are essentially powerless to do anything about it. And much like our protagonist Marcos, they just have to figure out where they fit in this system, do the best they can to cope, keep their heads down, and try not to get eaten by capitalism. It's been a few weeks since I finished reading Tender is the Flesh, and now that I've had more time to digest the story, pun intended, I can still say that I really enjoyed this book. I was horrified while reading it, and after it was all over, I was left with a lot to think about. And that's really all we could ask for when it comes to a good horror story. Now this next book has a much lighter and fun tone, but still tackles serious issues like addiction, inequality, and white guilt. This story also takes place in the city I currently live in, Richmond, Virginia, so it was fun reading a book about ghosts and spooky things happening right down the street from my house. Here's my review of Ghost Eaters. What if you could take a pill that gave you the ability to see the ghosts of your loved ones who've passed away? How addictive do you think a high like that would be, and do you think any potential side effects would be worth the risk? And how would you feel about having some white guilt sprinkled in just for good measure? Ghost Eaters by Clay McLeod Chapman answers those questions and more in horrifying detail. The book centers around four friends, Aaron, Amara, Tobias, and Silas, Aaron being our main protagonist. And the book opens up with the four friends tripping acid in a famous cemetery in Richmond, Virginia. This opening section does a good job of setting up the fun and spooky tone that's going to carry out through the entire book, and it also establishes that Silas is the wild one of the group and the mastermind that's always getting them into shenanigans. There's a pretty intense encounter during this opening scene in the cemetery that perfectly foreshadows what the rest of the book is going to be about. After this opening scene, the narrative picks up a couple years later after the four friends have graduated college, and they're trying to navigate that weird era that is your mid-twenties, some of them are working part-time jobs, they're trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives. We found out at this point that Silas is carefree, I want to experience everything life has to offer um, attitude, has landed him in rehab for not the first time. We also find out that Aaron and Silas have been on and off for the past couple years, and this leads to her breaking him out of rehab before he's actually supposed to be released from rehab. And this sets up the introduction of the drug ghost that lets you see the spirits of people who've died. So this is a good time to talk about the setting in which this book takes place, and the book takes place in Richmond, Virginia, which happens to be the city that I live in. And so this isn't an actual critique of the book, it's more of a personal experience I have, but since I'm so familiar with the setting that I found myself trying to recreate the locations in my head instead of just painting a picture as I read the narrative like I normally would. I mean, there's instances where the characters go to a bar that I've been to a couple times and even played an open Mike Knight uh, once or twice, and at one point they're actually walking through the neighborhood that I live in. Anyways, the setting of Richmond, Virginia is important because the drug ghost allows you to see the spirits of people who have died, and under controlled circumstances you can be guided and reunited with your loved ones, but it also just lets you see ghosts in general. And if you know anything about Richmond, Virginia, you know that the city is just haunted generally by ghosts, but it's also haunted by its past. Richmond, Virginia was the capital of the Confederacy during the U.S. Civil War. Now Richmond is a mecca of breweries, art school hipsters, live music, and beautiful murals on the side of almost every building. But just underneath all of those murals, you can still see Richmond's history that's steeped in racism, prejudice, and class division. 
I think the book does a really great job at exploring these themes. We find out that Erin, our main protagonist, actually comes from a well-off family. Her parents' home is located in an area in Richmond where all the McMansions are, and it's implied that she comes from a long line of generational wealth. If there is a rich white family in the Richmond area, it's pretty safe to assume they amassed all of that money through the use of slavery. I think following Aaron and looking through this lens, the book explores white guilt by literally making it confront the ghosts of its past. At one point, Aaron is high on the drug ghost and she's just roaming the streets of Richmond. And beyond the horror of seeing ghosts that are horribly disfigured, probably from the ways they were tortured and killed, um, she sees ghosts she recognizes as not just African American, but also the indigenous peoples who used to live on the land Richmond is now built on top of. Before Richmond was colonized, the area was home to many indigenous people, one of the larger tribes being the Powhatan tribe. What makes these encounters even more horrific beyond just the description of ghosts who look like they're still suffering from the ways in which they were killed is the way it confronts the ghosts of the past and brings up the ways in which these people had their friends and families killed and their homes ripped away from them by the white colonists. These ghosts are still in Richmond, haunting the city and the streets. I think the book explores white guilt in an interesting way by implying that these ghosts have always been here, but most people aren't willing or able to see them. Other themes explored in the book are death and the process of letting go of your loved ones, as well as addiction. The book itself isn't horribly scary, while there are some striking descriptions and some disturbing imagery, there's nothing that's going to keep you up at night or have you sleeping with the lights on. Some of the horror actually shines through by the description of what the drug ghost and the effect it has on people actually is. It's revealed to be incredibly addictive. I mean, it allows you to see and speak with the ghosts of your loved ones, so who wouldn't want to use it all of, if not most of the time? And I can see some serious parallels between the drug ghost and the real life opioid epidemic. And it really shows how everyday people can just get trapped and spiral down the funnel of addiction. And for people who are struggling with addiction in their everyday lives, it really can seem like a ghost that's just haunting them every day in the back. Background. A small gripe I did have with the book is that at times I found the four main characters a little annoying, and I wasn't sure why they were actually friends. It didn't seem like they really liked each other that much. I mean, the book does gloss over their college years, which are very formative when it comes to like making friends and the people you surround yourself with, and that could also fit into the theme of um, addiction, and we've all had people in our lives who are toxic, but we just can't seem to cut them out for some reason, and I think that that might be part of it. Overall, I think Ghost Eaters is a fun and creepy story that explores some really interesting themes, especially considering the location it's set in. So if you're looking for a good spooky story that takes place in the capital of the South, then I would give Ghost Eaters by Clay McLeod Chapman a read. That's it for this episode of Ghost in the Stacks. Thank you so much for listening. Hopefully you found these reviews and discussions helpful and maybe you'll pick up one of these books. Personally, I think they are both worth your time, attention, and money. If you liked the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a nice review or rating to help more people find the show. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you for the next episode of Ghost in the Stacks.